Sugarcoated. I'm your host, Adrian Garland, the CEO and founder of She Leads Media. For far too long, women have been conditioned to sugarcoat their words, their actions, and the way they show up in the world, and to conform to certain cultural norms and ideals. This is inherently designed to keep those who are outside of the norm from gaining power, prestige, wealth, and influence, preventing more women from being recognized and respected as the powerful leaders that we truly are. Join me each week as we dive into raw conversations with remarkable, uncompromising, and inspirational women that will encourage you to strip away your sugar coating and move boldly in the direction of your magnificent dreams. Everybody, this is Adrian Garland, and welcome to Sugar Coded. I am so happy today to share my guest with you. Uh, her name is Ashita Shah, and she is the president of Arun Ashi, a super high-end luxury, high-end jewelry company, designing company. Some of the most beautiful pieces of jewelry that I have ever seen in my life, worn by superstars, always included in the Rob Report. And I am so happy to be speaking with her because she is a a fellow graduate of the Goldman Sachs 10,000 Small Businesses Program, which I've mentioned here on the show before uh, that I graduated from, and Ashita did as well. Um, So I can't wait to uh, have a free-flowing conversation today all about what it's like to be a mom, to be an entrepreneur, and to work in the luxury world. So welcome to Sugar Coated Ashita. Thank you, Adrian. That was an amazing intro. Honestly, I, I don't. I feel so accomplished, but I really don't feel so accomplished all the time. But thank you for making <laughs> me sound so wonderful. <laughs> well, I know that you are wonderful. <laughs> so go ahead and just introduce yourself and sort of who you are. Wh- you know where you are to the sugar-coated audience. Sure. My name is, of course, Ashita Shaw, and I am a mom of two kids. My husband and I started Aranashi about 18 years ago, and the name of the company is really a combination of our names. His name is Arun, and my name is Ashita, so we kind of joined it and combined it to say Aranashi. I really thought of the name in the shower. It's not as sexy, but I think it's a great company name. And we both are reflections of one another, and that's truly how I feel about the company and the way we lead our lives as husband and wife, and also as business partners. So we've been designing jewelry and um, been in the industry for a long time. I'm a fourth generation jeweler, and Arun is a seventh generation jeweler. So we both have an incredibly strong background in the jewelry space and industry. Gosh, that is so wonderful. Yeah, I read that your husband um, is an eighth generation, but I didn't know that you two were uh, generations deep into this world. Like, what an incredible business to be in. And I think, you know, when I I just look at some of your pieces, you can tell that there's a lot of uh, history and that there's a lot of appreciation for the different materials. The artistry is out of this world. 
I actually have never seen a piece in person. So I'd, I'd love to, as we get into the conversation, maybe, you know, find out where I could see a piece, you know, live and, and in person. Um, but thank you so much for just agreeing to be on the show today and for being in company with me. Um, although we weren't in the same, we didn't go through the Goldman Sachs program together in the same cohort, we both did go through the program. I'd love to sort of hear a little bit about the business journey because you are an entrepreneur that has been in business for quite some time, I think since about uh, 2004, if that's right, if I have that right. Yeah. Yeah. 2004. Wow. Yeah. So that's quite some time to be in business, especially for, you know, a growing business. It's so tough these days. And I mean, I can just imagine, you know, COVID and all the things that are happening in the world that the jewelry business in general is probably affected. Um, could you just talk a little bit about the business and and sort of maybe how it's evolved uh, since you uh, started? Sure. So when we started the business initially, we had recently gotten married and um, we had moved. We had lived in India for a brief moment and we moved to Japan and um, we finally ended up in New York. And that's where we started the business. And Arun always has had a creative eye. He always did designing on some sort, but he's always been meticulous about quality, precision, and just a part of a way of um, storytelling that's kind of rare to see in the jewelry industry. So he started the business with wanting to create pieces that are truly extraordinary and creative. And we started our first door, you know, uh, the first retail store that we worked with, luckily for us, was Bergdorf Goodman in New York. And we really launched our business when we at Bergdorf Goodman, and then we've grown steadily ever since. Our need for luxury, the need for quality has been something that's just kept us going. And I think that the clientele really recognizes that true value. It's all one-of-a-kind pieces. And they're not mass marketed, they're not mass produced, they're handcrafted painstakingly. And um, that's really been the growth of our trajectory. I love that. You know, the artistry, right? And and then the quality of the materials and the gems and everything that is is used, it all clearly comes together so, so beautifully. I guess being able to be aligned with a company like Bergdorf's really set the stage for the the growth of your company. How did you even get into Bergdorf's? We met Bergdorf at a trade event and they saw Arun's jewelry. It was the first time we were exhibiting. We were super nervous. We really geared up, but we didn't know what to expect. And they saw the jewelry collection and they said that they had to have it in their store. And it really launched our line from there. I mean, we were really lucky, but I also think his experience helped substantially in being yeah. um, with Bergdorf. And once we were in Bergdorf, we started working with a lot of the other retailers. What what other retailers? Just curious. I'm, I'm very curious about this aspect of the business. And the reason I'm asking some of these very specific questions is because, uh, number one, I am a teacher. I, I do a lot of uh, teaching at NYU. We have a uh, group of students that are in an event management and hospitality program. They're going for their master's. And so many of them are 
interested in in just like the luxury market, not only arts and and crafts, but also um, just designing exceptional experiences globally. And so I know that they are super interested in in hearing from uh, somebody like you and understanding what are all of the, you know, all the little pieces and the things that you need to consider when starting and growing a business. So I'm just curious, what other retailers are you in, you know, currently? So we work with several of the Saks uh, Fifth Avenue stores, and we also work with Neiman Marcus. We work in the areas where they can support our jewelry with the right demographics and the right clientele. And across the country, we also work with retailers who may have a line of um, clothing in their store, but it's really high end. Mm-hmm. Again, where they bring in a certain clientele that wants these exquisite pieces, that wants these absolute luxury pieces, and they go hand in hand in styling with the clothing that the stores will carry. So we don't have a wide network. We like to go really deep with our clients because our pieces are one of a kind and they take a long time to make. And we don't have high volume of pieces, but we do have you know lots of interesting, unique uh, jewelry pieces that we create. So we work with few stores, but we're really deep with them. Do you are who's involved in actually getting, you know, going into these stores, speaking to the buyers and sort of presenting the line? We have a sales team that's remote. That's always been remote from different um, parts of the country that will work, go into a store and speak to them. If they've shown interest, they'll go in and speak to them, show them the line with line sheets and um, sometimes physical pieces. But at the end of the day, it's very important for Arun to walk into the store or have a few meetings with the store, with the buyers, with the owners to understand if it's the right fit for our brand. And if they are a good fit for us, even as clients, because it's sometimes when you want, when you carry jewelry in the store, they have a really specific mindset, but with each piece being so nuanced and storytelling, the client also has to understand it. And we always want to do a deep dive with each store to make sure that they're the right fit for us. And so Arun has does go in, does speak to each of the buyers, each of the owners of each of the stores, and then we move forward with, you know, whether we're going to be placed in the store or not. Wow, this is this is a really, really high touch type of uh, approach. I, I love it. And I love you can just kind of like feel the passion. I'm I'm picturing him, you know, maybe the, the salespeople have sort of set the stage for him to to come in and then he's really able to talk about all of this in excruciating detail because he's actually the one that has created everything. That must just be so much fun for him to, to sort of talk about where he was able to source some of the, the items that came together, where the inspiration for the pieces came from. I, I would love to be a fly on the wall um, for, for some of those stories. Anytime you're in LA, please come on by. I would love to work, show you the pieces and have you meet Arun. Oh my gosh, I would totally love that. I and I was going to ask you because uh, so so you said that you started here in New York, which is where we are. But I know that you are out in Beverly Hills. So what prompted the move from New York to California? So when we moved to New York, we lived in New York. But he and I traveled a lot for our work. I used to travel a lot back to LA for work, and I used to um, do lots of different events. And so we realized we wanted to start a family 
and his family lives in India and my family is based in Los Angeles. And we both thought we should at least have one set of grandparents for <laughs> our kids. And um, a move to LA at that time would be, would be good. We had just bought an investment property that was getting ready. We were running out of our lease. The timing was ideal for us to have made that transition over. And we moved to LA and we've been here ever since. We haven't moved oh, wow. back. Oh, wow. Wow. That is so interesting. Yeah, I, I didn't realize that your family was from L.A. It's, it is so good, especially, you know, when the both of you have this business together. You, you need that type of support from family when you have, you know, just forget about having kids. Like, you just need family support. And then when you have kids, it's like, it becomes critical. So my, my question is, what you know, have, building this business, it's a, it's, you know, a, a baby of its own, right? Um, and then having your, your two children, how did that sort of impact your, how you sort of worked and engaged with the company? Well, I was really involved in the company before I had my kids. And about nine and a half years ago, I had my older son who was going to be turning 10 this year, I stepped back to be a mom, but I was still part of the business in some capacity because I could never forego what I love doing, which is working. I'm a self-proclaimed workaholic, and then I became a mom. <laughs> so I also wanted to be with my older son, and then we had our second son, and I became a stay-at-home mom for a 100% stay-at-home mom about till about six years ago. And then when COVID happened, my kids were home all the time. They were Zooming all the time. And it got a lot for me to handle to just be in that environment. And I really felt I needed to do something when, with myself and my life because, you know, I was, everybody was in such a state of influx and uh, uncertainty. And so I decided to come back to work. So I say COVID made me work. And <laughs> I, I loved coming back to work. I loved all this creations. I love taking on the administrative, the logistical, the organizational, the strategy side of things, because that's really my um, sort of focal point, And that's what I do best. So I started doing that in COVID. And I've been here for, uh, I would say now almost a year and a half back in the business. And I love, love, love every moment of being here and seeing the business grow once again in a different direction. Yeah. Talk to me a little bit. I mean, I think that's so interesting. And, it, you know, it's such a blessing to be able to sort of be with our children at that stage in their lives when they need us most. I always I always worked. I've, I've always worked. Uh, I started out in corporate and then I started my business in 2010. But when my kids were young, I sort of never... I never had a problem going to work. I didn't feel like I was missing out because I knew my kids were really well taken care of. And, you know, I did a lot to spend time with them. But as they got older, like in that 10, 11, 12, you know, middle school type of age, that's when I really took a step back from, you know, what it was that I was doing, trying to build my business and all of that. And I really felt like that was the time that they needed me the most. You know, they go through these emotional changes. It's so hard. It's not just about, you know, making sure that they have food and that they're safe and taken care of. It's like a whole other level of like parenting at that point. Did you find the same thing? 
I feel the same way whenever I see someone having kids. I say the first few years are more physical, which you think is harder, but it's actually the easier part. And then as they get older, the mental and the emotional takeover, which is you have to be so much more present and aware of your child to be able to navigate them on a more emotional and um, mental level on, and be able to work with them and not fight with them. So I definitely see, find it harder to manage, but I also love that I spend quality time with them. When I do come home from work, I am always there for homework, bedtime. I you know, read to them. We spend a lot of time together in the evenings. And we always wake up in the morning and I'm with them. So I feel that my time with them is more quality based versus just waiting for them to show up and going through the motions of the pickups and drop offs. So yeah, I, I really am happy to have that balance and to have the quality time at work and at home with them. Yeah, that sounds like the best of both worlds. And I think it's so good for, for them to see, you know, both their mother and their father working and, and working collectively on something that, you know, is potentially a legacy for them, right? Like, what are you doing it for if not for them? <laughs> well, let's hope so. They see it. Sometimes they don't always see it that way. But in the long run, I think it'll work out for them. Yes, yes. Oh, that's that's awesome. And it's so good too that you're that you're near your family so that you know they they know that they're surrounded by a lot of different people that care about them. I think that that's really important, especially now these kids have just been through so much with COVID and you know things aren't over yet. Although like we were talking right before the recording, the world that you're in as far as your business, um, I, I thought it was so interesting how you were saying that, you know, some of the these higher end luxury type of buyers are like things have come back. And I, I, I love that. Can you talk a little bit about that and just the, the luxury market, how you're sort of observing it right now? Sure. So when, you know, in the midst of COVID, we never thought that things would change or look better, but we always told ourselves that it would be like the roaring 20s. And sure enough, you know, now that COVID has sort of died down or now that we have a handle on the understanding and the vaccine, my clients are ready to take it on to the next level. I mean, they already lived pretty full, glamorous and over the top life. And with things opening up, the events are larger than life. The galas are bigger than life and their travels have taken on a whole nother meaning. So work has exploded in a way that I never thought it would. And I, you know, I'm sort of caught off guard because it happened too quickly, but it has really grown on a level that I'm happy about. But um, I'm also just wondering where it's all going and where, you know, when does it change again? But till then we're riding the wave. We have more events coming up now in the next few months than we've had in a few years. So we're excited. We're excited for all the new and upcoming events. With When it comes to the events and sort of maybe dressing, you know, these high net worth individuals or even celebrities sometimes, does everybody pay or, or are there certain cases where you might like lend out a piece in order to gain some publicity? How does that work? So we work with a lot of stylists. And um, mm. one set of stylists works with the celebrities and the celebrities don't necessarily pay for the jewelry. But to be honest, a lot of our clients don't really want to purchase jewelry that's already been photographed 
or seen. So we really have had to scale back on our celebrity stylist relationships and um, present the pieces as first pieces that have never been worn or seen. So oh we work with a lot of stylists with the, um, you know, the wealthy women who have so many events and literally do not have the time to shop. So we work with those stylists that actually purchase the jewelry pieces for their clients to coordinate with their ball gowns and with their cocktail dresses and for the event. Gosh, I think it's so interesting that, you know, it's sort of the non-celebrity, more wealthy type of client is not interested in wearing something that a celebrity has worn and that they really do want to be unique. I, I, I find that fascinating, actually. It, it was quite a learning curve for us as well, because we always thought that celebrities are, you know, they give you a lot of brand knowledge and awareness, but it was sort of detrimental to our brand and we had to give back. And now yeah. we do work with celebrity stylists, but um, we only work with sort of the A-list celebrities and the A-list uh, stylists. And a wow. lot of times you get the press, we will not put it on social media or we'll try to not bring awareness to it in the most obscure kind of way of thinking. Wow. Yeah, I I do. I find that fascinating. That is something that I is completely unexpected. But at the same time, I think that people, you know, especially wealthy individuals have the the luxury of sort of being unique and having something that nobody else has. I guess it's it's sort of like the next level of wealth, right? To say that you truly own a one of a kind that has never been seen before and it's it's yours. Correct. Correct. So when we get placement for our products, if it's in an editorial piece or as a coverage in a magazine, depending on how the coverage is, then we'll have a client or two who'll say we want that piece only because they've seen it in such a different light versus on a celebrity where it's shown as in a different light. So it's really interesting how we've had to work around getting PR or making sure that our pieces are shown in the right perspective versus the other, um, you know, on the client, celebrity clients. Yeah, this is also something that is super fascinating too, right? It's like, here you are, you're a business. You have to really develop very close, intimate relationships with, you know, high-end retailers, Mm -hmm. but also these stylists. And it's sort of like, you know, what seems that all businesses might want is is press, right? So So that people can be aware of it. But there's a certain point where you don't want everybody to know about it. You you want to uh, sort of protect. It's it's like an exclusive club that only certain people know about certain you know brands, and it it seems like you are in that realm, if you will. So that's that's so. It almost seems counterintuitive when it comes to getting press and, and creating awareness. Uh, you know, how do you do that when your clientele doesn't really want everybody to know about <laughs> about the pieces that they own? Well, so we've had to be really careful in how we curate that brand awareness. It's been through a lot of events. It's a it's part of a um, secret that's going to be discovered, but will you know, opened up slowly instead of just being presented to them. So we work with a lot of individuals across the country who curate events for us for the right kind of group. And then they meet with Arun and it becomes a really one-on-one event 
and a one-on-one emotional connect. And if they relate to the piece and to the story, then that's how they start becoming collectors of our jewelry. But to say that we would just go out there, stand and do an event, it's pretty much we're never going to get a client that way. They want to feel connected to the brand. They have access to everything in this universe pretty much, but they want to feel an emotional connect, an emotional want, need to purchase the piece and something that's relatable to them. Yeah, there's a lot of psychology behind that. <laughs> there, there is, there is. But, you know, it's, when you look at it, it, it comes from such a hu- simple humanistic need of wanting to just connect with people and then wanting what they have. You know, when you yeah. connect with anybody, you want, you want a piece of whatever they're selling or wearing or have because you feel a connection to them. And it's the same thing with jewelry. Now, did in sort of your family and your husband's family, was this storytelling, emotional connection aspect, was that how the previous generation's businesses approached it? Or did Arun take this like to another level? That's a very interesting question. And one I've actually never thought about. But as soon as you asked me that, a lot of stories just kind of popped into my head. And when I think of Culturally, India is a really large uh, country with a deep, deep history of jewelry. And so when jewelers worked with families hundreds of years ago from royal families to the next person who's purchasing jewelry, they go to the family jeweler. The family jeweler will come home. They talk about what their needs are. They start building a collection. A lot of the jewelry gets gets given to the daughters for their weddings. A lot of the jewelry gets given to the daughter-in-law's. Um, when the son gets married. So it becomes a collective conversation that then gets deep-rooted in the jeweler telling the buyer of sorts, you know, why this piece is important to have in your collection, what's the significance of it, why this is a good piece to collect and invest in. So it becomes a storytelling, but on a different level, but one that still stays with the buyer or the family, and they continue that heritage of buying from that jeweler and it is a part of the storytelling an emotional connect that the families have with the jeweler and they become a sort of an advisor on the jewelry collection and unknowingly or knowingly or just because it's part of our DNA I suppose is how it all is manifesting itself in a completely contemporary setting but one that we'd never even realized up until literally this moment that has come together. Wow. Yeah, it's it's so beautiful. And I, I feel like there's such incredible energy behind that, too. Like even, you know, and, and I don't know if your husband actually creates the, the pieces based on somebody's desires or if he is inspired by something and so he creates something. But it seems to me that it's it's like an energetic connection to everything coming together. And you know, it just, it sounds like just so powerful. Like I'm thinking how cool would it be to almost do like a historical perspective, like you just outlined on how this business sort of came to be because it's so much more than than even just jewelry, right? All of these, even when you think about gems and stones and everything, they hold the earth's energy, right? So... 
it's almost like you hear like, oh, a peace finds you. Do you have, you might not, I'm just, I just thought of it. Like, do you have any stories where, you know, there was just some type of like magic that that happened, you know, almost like Arun was drawn to something or someone. Um, I, there's got to be something there. <laughs> so it's funny that you asked. Um, Arun actually creates a lot of pieces based on what he kind of sees in the world, what he notices on travels, what he notices on, you know, maybe even what the kids are doing, what activities they're doing. And two stories pop into my mind, and I'll tell you one because it kind of relates to my son. Um, when my son was, when my older son, Keon, was about maybe a year old, he had this deep, deep fascination for snails. And I have no idea why he would love snails. And we would call him the snail whisperer because these snails would literally be on our walls all the time. And when he was not around or be gone on vacation, they would all be gone. And then they would slowly come back. It was really fascinating to see how that was happening. And so one day when Arun was, you know, just, I guess, looking for gems or the gems were looking for him, he found a pair of blue diamonds. And for some reason, he thought that he wanted to do a snail urine out of these blue diamonds. Mm. And he created the most amazing snail earrings with these blue diamonds, which were so fabulous that actually that went on to be featured in Robert Port as one of the most coveted um, items for the year or for the season. And um, they sold a few million dollars later. So it's such a trajectory that Arun will see something and then keep building on it. But he has such a deep connection to each aspect of the creative process that he just creates it and it finds the right person at the right time. God, I love this. It's so good. It's so good. And I, I love too how, gosh, this is like, I, I think there's so many parallels with like entrepreneurship. I love how I have so many different thoughts going through my head. But you know, first of all, it's sort of baked into both of your DNA, right? The sort of the the jewelry. Yeah. So so that that comes first, right? So there's a propensity. It's just you know, who you are, uh, who the both of you are, if you will. But I I love this concept of him and you almost trusting that whatever it is that you're experiencing in life is going to manifest itself in a way that is going to turn into something that is beautiful and and make a connection with someone else as like this gift I just think it's beautiful. Thank you. Well, we, you know, that's what we love to do. We love to create what speaks to us. And um, hopefully we just find one other person that can relate to us. And we're happy with that. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Our pieces of jewelry are like our kids because from the creation to the end takes so much work and time and effort and energy that, that you become a part of. They become a part of you. So when someone comes to you and wants to, purchase a piece, you almost look at them and ask yourself, are you a good custodian for my piece of jewelry? Do you take it with the same emotion that I've created it? And then it gets sort of handed over. Yeah. Wow. It, it, in, in so many ways, it's like when you think about a business, 
it feels counterintuitive, right? There's all these business principles that you need to follow and it's all about growth and, you know, positioning things correctly and everything. And and this is is more about the artistry of it all. And I, I just think that there's probably a lot to learn here for there's, you know, this this idea that your business doesn't have to be exactly what all other businesses are that are successful. You can have a different approach, a different model, if you will, that can work spectacularly. But you do have to, you have to trust. And then you have to know that like if it if it's not working, when to maybe regroup. You're right. You're absolutely right, Adrian. You know, when I read and I read a lot of books and I've um, started taking some classes and whatnot. And I, when I hear a lot of the business advice, I always think to myself, well, that doesn't apply to me. That is not how we do things. And so, yes, there's a not, lot of information out there, but it's really more general. And I've had, I mean, the, and the hardest part has really been to take our business and be able to fine tune it in a way that works for us. And a lot of it has been trial and error. It hasn't been laid out to us in any of the books or in through any, um, thing that I've learned out there. It's what we see, what we know that the business needs and what we know that our clients need is how we have developed the business over the course of the few years. I mean, there's some things that have worked and there's some things that have not worked, but we take our lessons and move forward. Yeah. You know, I'm fascinated by, I'm fascinated by this for so many different reasons. But one of the things that I talk about a lot is, you know, I'm super focused on uh, women-owned businesses and, and just with everything that we've seen with the great resignation and how working in a corporate environment oftentimes doesn't work for women, doesn't work for people that have families. There's not a lot of flexibility. You have to do things the way that corporate wants you to do things. And so I, you know, I I say a lot, like I believe truly that entrepreneurship is the antidote to working in a corporate environment. But one of the other things that I talk about a lot is, you know, even even with the Goldman Sachs program, and, and I learned a lot, so I don't want to, you know, misspeak about it at all. But a lot of what we learned was based on what has been successful in the past when creating a company. And what's unfortunate about that is here we are as, you know, women entrepreneurs building off a model that doesn't work for us. And so I look at like the results, like, well, that's why when women start businesses, we don't often get past the million dollar mark or, you know, we have trouble getting access to financing. It's because we're building something that is not for us. And so I'm always looking around for what's a new type of business model that is more like designed to benefit women and and I feel like in talking to you today I feel like this could be a really good model because it's based on like inner knowledge and honoring your gifts no you're right and you know and going back to your uh, point about Goldman Sachs it's a great program it helped me solidify a lot of my thinking and be able to streamline and channelize it but I think that that's just a starting point 
where a lot of the entrepreneurs have to sort of jump off from. They then have to be led by an inner voice, as you mentioned, and be able to take chances. And um, I think that women also are really intuitive, and I think that they need to be led by that intuition and to have faith in themselves and their thinking and know their client base. So um, that's really, that's sort of how we have built our business, and that's how I lead from. You know, I think a lot of, of women need to kind of go in that direction and just be true to themselves and their thoughts. Yeah. And I, I also really love the idea of the balance too. I, I, I love businesses that it's, you know, a, a man and a woman, a husband and a wife. I think uh, yin and yang, I, I think that that is also something that is super important because, you know, sometimes the pure feminine energy, you know, kind of takes you down one path. And then obviously the the pure male energy oftentimes takes you down a certain path. But when I think the two different genders come together and you can, you know, work things out and balance things out. I think that 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 could be a really interesting model for, you know, success. But I I really I really love uh hearing about your business and and how you and your husband are approaching it because I do feel like it provides a framework that we can observe and think about and seeing all the success that that you've had, you know, that's another component of it, right? So all these other businesses that are are created are, are successful. And so that's why we pattern ourselves and try to build businesses like that. Some of these other businesses that women create, and that's a sweeping statement, but some of these other businesses that women create, they often don't get to those levels of success. So why would you want to sort of follow that when it doesn't get you what you want? But here you've laid out for us that there is another way. And uh, I think it's scary to almost trust yourself, right? And your intuition, because we haven't really been taught how to do that. Right. We, We come from a really strategic kind of thinking. We never do a deep dive into what It is that's working and not working and picking up on that. And a lot of the intuition sort of stems from when you do something right and you get good results, I would say more than even intuition, follow that trajectory and that path of success. And if something doesn't work well, don't try to fix it. Move on to a newer way. But you have to be sort of outside the box thinkers. You have to be creative in your thinking. And you do have to apply a lot of different aspects of your life to what you're doing at that moment. If you think that success is going to be, you know, from a textbook or from a class, it's just a starting point of the thought process. It is not a viable or guidelines of how to run your business. And I think women have to know that and then be back in touch with themselves to know what it is. And they have to understand what their clients want. I think that's a really important aspect of any business. Ask yourself who my clients want and then just really go from there instead of thinking, what do I give my clients? I think when you just put the questions differently, the answers are completely different and that is your direction and goal. This is so smart. When we teach this class that I teach, that it's an MBA class at Rice University and it's uh, called New Venture 
the new enterprise. I don't know why I'm confused what I'm teaching. The new enterprise. And one of the, the modules is that we have the students go out and talk to customers. They interview customers with these open-ended questions. And it's one of the hardest things that these MBA students do because they're so focused on what is the solution that they want to put out in the marketplace instead of listening to the people that they're actually creating this solution for. And it's it's revolutionary, uh, th- this approach. And it sounds silly, but it's like to actually talk to the customers. And I feel like when you were describing how your husband goes in and talks to the buyers and and that's what he's doing. He's he's not only relaying his story, he's also gathering information. And he's bringing that back whether he does it consciously or not. And I just I love all of this. I, I feel like these are some of the critical components of success and how to I love how you said, you know, use some of these resources, books, courses, whatever, use them as a starting point, but then experiment, go out, talk, and keep following the stuff that's working. Yes. I mean, that's sort of how we have built our business, seeing what works for us and what doesn't, and just kind of taking it from there. You know, and, you know, whenever I read a lot of the business books or, you know, they ask you to put a business plan together and whatnot, they always say, what is the, what is the pain point that you're trying to resolve? And I think to myself, there is really no pain point that I'm trying to resolve. I'm just trying to provide beautiful jewelry, but that's not a pain point. So, you know, there's so many questions out there that don't apply to all the businesses, and yet we are focused or made to think in a certain direction. But I think that not every question needs to be answered in that specific manner. Yeah, I love that. And, you know, it it almost seems to me that if you were to ask me, <laughs> what pain point are you trying to solve with your business? It It almost comes down to like a fundamental identity, right? It's like, these these wealthy individuals want to have something that is uniquely their own and that's that's the the relief that you're providing them and you're doing it in the most beautiful luxurious way possible but you're you're almost giving them a sense of identity exactly i i'm providing a beautiful piece of jewelry but i'm you know i'm giving them something that they wouldn't otherwise have seen but yeah. i don't know that i'm necessarily going out and changing the world some of these questions. Yeah, no, right, right. Like, right. (laughs) Yeah, what are you solving world hunger? No, but you're making people happy. I I am um, satisfying their need for beautiful um, artifacts. Yeah, and that's also, I think, a very fundamental human need. I mean, going back in, you know, the beginning of human history, humans always wanted something like as a talisman to signify something. And we're, we've always been drawn to storytelling, beauty and art. So yeah, you're just continuing the, the tradition. <laughs> yes, I'm happy to continue to do so. Yeah. No, I love it. I have to, I definitely have to come out to LA. I have a couple of friends that live out there. So um, I can, I can definitely make my way out there. have a good reason, another reason to come out. Well, we would love to see you here. We'd love to show you the creations and have you meet with Arun. He is, um, he he is quite the charmer and, um, (laughs) and he's very good at uh, what he does and and the way he presents himself. He's really earnest. And that's, um, that's, I think that's the most important part of 
any business. I agree. Well, thank you so much for spending this these last 40 or so minutes with me. I really enjoyed our conversation and I just can't wait to keep in company with you. I know that we'll be doing some things together in the future, hopefully around women and women entrepreneurs. Uh, so just thank you so much. And, uh, you know, by the way, um, where can people, you know, if they want to follow what you're doing on social or connect with you, how, how can they go about doing that? Sure. Um, our Instagram handle is Arunashi BH, and uh, we our website is arunashi.com. And we're not very active on social media or our website, um, but we are really active when we um, have our collections in stores. So we are at the Sachs and Neiman's and um, around the country for the most part, and several of the retailers. So, yeah, uh, stop it. in if there's a specific. I'm happy to match you up with a retailer or store in that area. If, that um, sounds great. So good. And uh, I, I definitely will include all of that information in the show notes. And then I'm going to get myself into Saks and go over to the fine jewelry department and, uh, and see if I can find some pieces. <laughs> please do. Please do. Adrian, this was super fun. Um, I loved having this conversation with you. More than a podcast, it was just a really lovely way of... Um, speaking to another female in the industry and who is an outside the box thinker. And I really um, appreciated my time with you. Oh, thank you so much. It's really been my pleasure. And we will definitely connect again soon. I look forward to meeting you and connecting soon. Okay. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. The She Leads Podcast Network.